chapter 6. We'll cover the first uh, four verses this morning. Um, these verses have to do with children, obey your parents, and parents or fathers don't exasperate your children, but bring them up and teach them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. In the interest of full disclosure, you need to know that I used to be a child. Uh, it, it's, it's hard to, to, to imagine, to get your head wrapped around it, but I, I did all the, the kid things that, that uh, we used to do back in the last century. Uh, but, uh, but a lot of the dynamics were still the same. Uh, you know, every family's a little bit different. Some families are very demonstrative and, you know, and huggy and, and kiss on the cheek all the time and, 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 and very you know, expressive of their love and affection for one another. Uh, my family wasn't really like that. Um, Dad's family of origin was a little less uh, reserved and, or, or a little less uh, expressive, more reserved. Um, didn't talk much about feelings. Dad wasn't a, really an emotional feeling kind of guy. I knew he loved me, but um, honestly, in my entire childhood, I can't remember him ever saying to me that I love you. It just, you know, it, it, it's not a big issue. I mean, it hasn't, hasn't, hasn't affected me much. But, uh, but that, that's just the way he was raised, and that was, that was part of that. And so I just never remember him as saying, I love you. Um, until uh, I got out of the house, got married, and we, we had David and um, somehow Dad and I wound up at a, at a men's conference together up at uh, Sandy Cove. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about this uh, sort of thing. And uh, so I, I finally I went up to Dad. I said, Dad, I want you to know that, you know, every day I tell David I love him. And Dad, I want you to know I love you too. And I love you. He said, thank you. And walked away. <laughs> Two hours later, he just he comes up to me, and all he said was, "Son, I love you too." And after that, we we were saying, "I love you" back and forth all the time. It just it just took opening the door, just just saying a little bit of of, of affection. You know, if maybe you're you're caught up in one of those things where. We're not expressive. We don't talk about that. Try it. You'll like it. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and it's not too late. You know, dads, if it's been a long time since you told your teenage son that you loved him, uh, today's a good day. You know, and you, you might uh, just give him a hug, too. Um, dad, uh, many of you know, Dad had Parkinson's, which is an insidious disease. Um, and as you can imagine, we never hugged, you know, growing up. Uh, and... Uh, but when he was diagnosed with Parkinson's, uh, we were uh, living out of state at the time. They came to visit us. And so the first time I saw him after the Parkinson's, I, I hugged my father. And he hugged me back. And we hugged each other ever after. I hate Parkinson's. But God used it to open a door. And it's not too late to start. Uh, one of the... Um, the problems with Parkinson's disease in its final stages is dementia sets in. And uh, uh, this, this is what happened to Dad. And uh, he wound up in the nursing home. He was in the Alzheimer's ward. He did not have Alzheimer's, but his dementia was such that it sort of behaved like Alzheimer's. And 
um, I would go to see him and say, Dad, how are you doing? And he wouldn't say anything. And I would sit down at the table and, and talk to him, and he wouldn't say anything. And um, I, would, I would try. Well, some of you have been there. You know what it's like. You just try to get through, and nothing happens. So after, after a while of visiting, I would, I would get up and say, well, Dad, I love you. And I would kiss him on the forehead. And then he would say the only words, I love you too. Somewhere in the depths of his mind and heart. I don't know. Maybe it was a reaction. Maybe it was automatic. I don't know. But I know this. The last words my dad ever said to me was I love you. I find the older I get, I don't think about my dad less. I think about him more. And I say that because that's, that's sort of the, the background that I bring to this passage of Scripture. Paul's going to be talking about children and parents. It's phrased children and fathers because in the ancient Roman world, the father of the home, he was the patriarch, he ran everything. He had tremendous legal authority over even his grown sons. Uh, he could pretty much do to them, do to them whatever he wanted. And, uh, and when Paul talks about children, obey your parents, yeah, right on, Paul. And then he says, and fathers, don't exasperate your children. Don't, don't uh, provoke them to wrath. Don't make them angry all the time. Paul was talking about something so radical. The Roman world had never heard anything like this before, that parents had an obligation to their children. That obligation was to bring them up and to nurture them. And that the children weren't there just to do the bidding of the parent. The parent was there to serve their children in a very real sense. We saw something like that in the husband-wife relationship a moment, uh, a little while ago. So that, that's where we are. Uh, let's read the verses together, and then later on this morning we'll spend some time uh, thinking about parents and children. This is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. And children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's bow together in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to call you our Father. And to know that it, this is not ours because of our goodness and our righteousness, not ours because of our, our thoughts, but, Father, we call you Father because of your love and your grace given to us in Christ Jesus, transforming our hearts, bringing us into a direct and personal relationship with you by the power of the Spirit. Father, what a privilege it is and what boldness it gives us to come before your throne of grace and to lay our lives at your feet with all of our brokenness, all of our confusion, all of our wrong-headedness, all of the mistakes we have ever made. And yet you love us still and love us so much that you don't leave us there, but you bring us up out of the depths and set us on the heights. Father, you lift us up out of our confusion. You set us in the midst of your wisdom. You lift us up out of our, our, our silliness. Father, you give us the rock-solid truth of your word. 
Father, we just thank and praise you that you are the perfect Father to whom we aspire. And I pray your Holy Spirit would work in our midst so that wherever we are in life, whether there are little ones in the home or grandchildren, nieces, nephews, whether we are caretakers for small children, Father, that in these next few moments we would learn how to deal with our children in a way that would give you honor, praise, and glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Just to give you a little insight into the process of coming into a sermon like this, when you, when you have a text in front of you and it's about parents and children and you know you're going to talk about family and things like that, uh, naturally the, the first thing you're going to think about in your study, you're going to start thinking about what are all the Bible examples of families, of good, healthy family life that I can draw on and talk about from the Bible. And the answer is, there aren't many. I mean, it's just a difficult thing. You go into the Old Testament, you get the, uh, the patriarchs, for example, and they're constantly fighting with each other. Uh, Jacob and Esau, they're fighting with each other. And then uh, Joseph and his brothers, they're fighting with each other. And you have all these dysfunctional families that, that just aren't really what you want your family to be. You go to King David and his sons are rebelling against him and trying to kill him and kick him out of the, uh, off the throne. And, and so you, you wind up with a little bit of a difficulty finding uh, examples uh, to point to. Uh, you know, you can go in your mind, you say, well, what about Eli and his sons? You remember Eli and his sons? No, you don't. I'll tell you about it. Eli was a priest to God, and he had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And uh, the Bible says, uh, almost word for word, it says, now the sons of Eli were scoundrels. And they were. Uh, after all, they were preacher kids. And they, uh, I are a preacher kid. Your, your mother's a preacher kid. You're a preacher kid. Your brother's a preacher kid. How many preacher kids do we have in here? There, you see? Look. We outnumber you guys. I, I wasn't going to say this. Let me tell you. If you look in, in uh, like, who's who, uh, you will find that there are more successful uh, children of preachers than any other profession. I just share that with you. So, <coughs> next week's sermon is on pride. But anyway, but uh, uh, Eli's sons they would stand at the gate of the temple, and as people came in, they would basically extort the person that you can't offer your sacrifice until you let us take the the best part of the of the meat and, and use it for ourselves and all that. Now, I mean, it, it, was, it was a terrible situation. But on the other hand, you get to the New Testament and Paul writes to Timothy. He said, uh, Timothy, I, I just remember your, uh, your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice and how they taught you the scriptures from a very early age and I want you to hang on to that. So evidently Timothy had a very godly home and a very godly kind of, of uh, upbringing. There were also um, uh, the, uh, the example of the prodigal son. Jesus used a loving father who loved his son enough to let go enough that the son would come back on his own and stay on his own. And a lot of dynamics go on in the parable of the prodigal son, but that's one of them is the, is the parent-child dynamic going uh, on there. Uh, you also have uh, those wonderful, wonderful parents who brought their children to Jesus. You remember what happened. They, they brought their kids to Jesus and, I, you know, we, we always think of the picture in Sunday school class of these well-behaved children saying, is it my turn now, Jesus? Okay. 
There you go. No, that's not the way it works. You know, how do preschoolers do anything? In the most embarrassing way possible, okay? I'll just leave it at that, and I'm not going to act it out, but you, you get the picture. Just, you're, they're, they're, you're wrestling with your child, and you're trying to keep three of them in tow and bring them to Jesus. And the disciples come up and say, folks, you can't do this. Your children are disruptive. Why? Um, and, you know, if they keep this up, we're going to have to get them out of the service. We'll have to have something like children's church. I don't know. We'll do something like that. <laughs> oh, that was a low blow. But, uh, but anyway, but, uh, they're, they're saying, you know, keep, keep the children away. And Jesus says, guys, you, you're missing the point here. I want you to let the children come unto me. Don't, don't stop them. Because if you want to know what the kingdom of God is like, you just look at these children. And I think he could have added, and look at the way I love them. The Bible says he took them, held them, and he blessed them. Jesus' own mother stayed with him to the end of his life. Uh, it, it appears that Jesus fulfilled the obligation of the oldest child in the family, uh, oldest son in the family, and that his mother went with him on his uh, preaching missions. And uh, there were other women who, who went along too, a radical thing to happen uh, at that time. And when all the other uh, men, disciples, had sort of hightailed it out of there out of fear, at the foot of the cross, you find the mother of Jesus. And you find Jesus taking care of his mother. So we have some examples and we have some insight. And Paul gives us a, a, a good sort of framework to use as we think about what happens in a godly home. What do godly uh, Christian parents do with regard to their children? And Paul says this in, in the line of the book of Ephesians. We've been studying this book for many months now. And you'll remember when we started out that the whole focus was on the glory of God. Uh, the full phrase was on the glory of God's grace in Christ Jesus. That was in chapter 1. And we've never left that emphasis on the glory of God and the need to proclaim the glory of God and live out the glory of God, live towards the glory of God. The glory of God then just shaping everything, especially as that grace comes to us, the glory of grace comes to us in Christ Jesus, appropriated by faith, the grace of God received by faith, not of ourselves, but the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. And that grace then is applied, as Paul says, now walk in a manner worthy of your calling. I want you to live out and look the way God wants you to look in your, in your living. So walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And then he talks about all the kinds of things that, that are part of the Christian life. Most recently, we've been looking at uh, that as a result of being filled with the Spirit, we are submissive to one another. And that, that, uh, that dynamic comes into the marriage relationship where husband and wife uh, are yielding themselves to the marriage and to the oneness that they are have the wife to submit the husband to die on her behalf you, re you recall all that well now as we're getting to parents and children nothing has changed it's still for the glory of God it's still raising children for the glory of God with the glory of God as the goal and the definition and the shape and the dynamic and the power raising children for the glory of God and what that means is that godly parents who want their children to know God's glory, godly parents will teach their children obedience. Now, I know the scripture says, children, obey your parents. And again, that was written uh, also to adult children, primarily in, in some ways. Uh, but uh, it, it, it's true of children of all ages. I think we, we probably think of smaller children, but it's, it's true of, of, of the child-parent relationship throughout life in many ways. 
But in order for a child to obey, they've got to be taught how to obey. They've got to be taught how to obey. See, the default position of a young child is not obedience. See, I want to remind you that when children come into your home, they come to you as a heritage from the Lord. That's Psalm 127. Uh, that scripture says, Children are a heritage from the Lord, and blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. I always like using the word quiver when referring to a lot of children. But, uh, but children are a heritage. And think about what that word heritage means in a biblical sense. Heritage is something you inherit. It's something that's, that, that's sort of given to you. When the children of Israel left Egypt and they went through the wilderness and they finally wound up in the promised land and after the conquest and so forth, the children of Israel were given, each one was given a heritage. Each one was given an inheritance. It was a section of land that the family would work. And the reason God did this, the reason he gave each family some land to work as their heritage was not so that he would have a stable economy, you know, 40 acres and a mule kind of thing. The reason was so that every family would have a place where they could work for the glory of God. The heritage was given so that God would be glorified as you work that land. And so to say that children are a heritage from the Lord is to say that when children come into your life, whether it's your own children, again, nieces or nephews, or they're just little human beings who come in and they inhabit your life, this is a heritage from the Lord. This is an opportunity to, to live out the glory of God and to bring the glory of God into fulfillment into the lives of these little ones. So I remind you, children are a heritage from the Lord. While we're at it, I'll remind you that children are on loan from the Lord. They don't belong to us. They belong to God. And we will have to give an account to what we have done to impact, to affect, and, and to shape positively and negative, give an account of how we have treated what belongs to God. Children are on loan from us. They're not there for our benefit. They're there for the master's benefit, for the glory of God. And I also want to remind you, and, you, know, and you, you will pick this up from general reading of Scripture. Children come to us, and they come to us flawed. They're not perfect. Your children are perfect, but um, you know everybody else's children. Now, if I was going to be deeply theological, if I was going to be absolutely theological and, and uh, you know, just pound the Bible and all that, I, I would have said, children come to us with original sin. Now, that sounds kind of heavy. Here's what the actuality is. Children come to us with original sin. All right. And, and think about it. I, and it's not hard to figure out why that's the case. When a little three-month-old is, is lying in the crib, what, what is she thinking about? I mean, what, what does a little three-month-old think of in the crib? Usually, they're thinking something like this. I wonder how I can spend my life for the benefit of mankind. Or she's thinking, who's going to feed me? Who's going to get that blanket? I can't even get a blanket here. Guys, blanket, now. And oops, who's going to clean me? You see, when a human being comes into the world as a child, they are self-focused and self-centered. This, you know, this isn't like, oh, wow, you've got the... Uh, little uh, rosemary baby there or something but but those of you who got it just forgive me for it but you know the, the, the thing is you know 
As human beings, we come to the world and we are self-focused and self-centered because we are the only people we know. I mean, that's just the way it works. And the big voices, the big people out there, whatever they are, they are there to serve me. They're there to feed me and clothe me and clean me. Make sure I'm warm. If they don't do it, I'm going to let them know. That's why we cry a lot. By the way, I think that's why people scream when they're angry and scream when they don't get their way. It's, it's, It's because back in the crib, that's what you did to get your own way. And it worked. You know, you were taught at an early age. If you scream loud enough, you would work. But children are come into the world self-centered. And the point is, as human beings, we gravitate towards self, not towards the things of God. Our most natural disposition is to look out for ourselves, not for others. And so children come into the world, and they are flawed. They are innocent. But they need to be taught. You ever hear somebody say, and some people have this, this idea, oh, children are basically good, just get out of their way and they'll be okay. The technical term for that in theological surface is balderdash. Right? That's, that's what that is. Children need to be taught. They need to be taught correctly. And the other thing you need to keep in mind about your children is that their only hope of eternal life is Jesus Christ. That is the only hope. They can get a lot of things of value from a lot of other people, but the only one who can give them life everlasting is Jesus Christ. Okay? And that's why they need to be taught. They need to be taught. And the reason that's important is that when you teach a child to obey, you teach them to yield their self-will to the will of a better, higher authority, if you will. They need to learn the mechanisms of listening to someone outside of themselves. Otherwise, they will operate entirely on the basis of whim and emotion. A lot of people today still act on whim and emotion. And when you see that, you say, how childish. Well, that's what children do. They act on whim and emotion, on the basis of what I want. They need to learn to submit their whims to the controlling authorities of somebody outside of themselves. And, once, and, the, and that's mom and dad. That needs to be, be taught lovingly, consistently, compassionately, under, with understanding and wisdom, all these things. But they need to learn obedience. Because once they've learned how to submit and obey mom and dad, they will have the tools and the resources internally to obey the law, whether that's the civil law, but more importantly, the law of God. They will know how to yield whim and emotion to God's direction and the law of God. And understanding that, then they will have the tools available that when they receive Christ and the Holy Spirit takes up residence within them, they will have learned how to yield to the Holy Spirit. You see, when you're teaching obedience to children, you're not teaching them so that you have a child that will impress your neighbors, you know, will do nice little tricks when you want them to do, you know, come when you call. You know. You're teaching them obedience so that they know how to glorify God with their lives and how to yield to and live under the leadership of God's Holy Spirit in their lives. That's just how important it is. Which, by the way, is why you should never, ever, ever, never, never, ever use reverse psychology on a child. 
You know how, what reverse psychology is? You want them to do something, so you tell them the opposite. It's like you, you want them to go outside and play and get some exercise, so you tell them, now you sit down and you do your homework. And, of course, they get up and they run outside and play. And you're so proud of yourself. You got them to do what you wanted them to do. Here's what you did. You lied to your child. You were deceptive and manipulative. And more importantly, you taught them to disobey you. And I didn't make this up. Psychologists will tell you this about reverse psychology. You know, maybe, maybe you use that. Uh, and you're never going to do it again. Because when you use uh, reverse uh, psychology, psychologists will tell you that you are appealing to the reactive, emotive state of the child because nobody likes to be told what to do. You're teaching disobedience. By the way, that's why you should never, ever, ever, never count. You know that thing like, I'm going to count to three. You ever do that? No, no, you, you people are too wise to do that. But you, you've seen other parents will do that. Say, you know, you, you better do that or I'm going to count to three. You better do it. One, two, Three, and they get up and do it. And you're so proud of yourself. What have you taught? You've taught, you can disobey me for three counts before I get serious. And the child knows that. That's why it's even worse to count to 10. Because you're teaching 90% disobedience before you get to 10. If you're going to teach obedience, say something once. And by the way, don't ever tell a child to do something. You're not willing to set down everything. Get up out of your chair and go make them do it. Because otherwise, you're, you're just talking to yourself and they know it. Right? Um, it it's, it, it'd be better for you to be quiet than to tell them some, to do something you haven't done or, or you're not going to make them do. Because then you're teaching disobedience. See, in any, any behavioral modification, you know, and, and discipline of the child, there's always two issues. One is the actual action that they're doing. What, what is it they're doing? Is it dangerous? Is it harmful? Is it hurtful? You know, that kind of thing. But the other issue is, how are they responding to authority that can control their whims and emotions? There's always those two issues involved. You've got to keep those in mind. So uh, a godly parent teaches obedience because that's how you teach a child uh, to respond to the glory of God in their life and the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life. A, a godly parent then also, as we look at this passage, will we'll teach uh, honor in their lives. In, in verse 2, he says, Honor your father and mother, first commandment with a promise. Um, and again, it's telling the child to do that, but they have to be taught to honor their father and their mother. By the way, it is the task of the dad to make sure the mother is honored and respected. Always. And it's very simple why. Because this little boy that she can take in a fair fight, he's going to be head and shoulders bigger than she is. And she, he still needs to know that the moment mama speaks, he better listen. And he, you know, and he just hears mama's voice, say, yes, ma'am, I'll do that. And he has no idea why. It's because you programmed him all those years. You know, sort of like Pavlov. But dad, you need to insist on that. Mama should, no, mom, mother should never have to um, assert or privilege as the mother. That's dad's job. Now, I understand a lot of times dads are gone on deployment at work and, you know, timing, scheduling. Sometimes you need to deal with an issue right then and there. But dads, that's one of your primary jobs is to make sure your children honor their mother and respect their mother. The Bible says that. The default position, I think, of most human beings coming into the world is to honor their parents. 
I think little boys come into the world and they desperately want their dad in their world. They desperately want that father figure. I think it's true for girls, but I don't have as much experience with that. But I know it's true for boys. They definitely need dad in their lives. And the default position is they will let you into their lives because they don't have a choice. They're little babies. Or they're little preschoolers and, and, you know, you can still handle them. So uh, if you're in their life, they, they want you there and they'll respond to you. But if you're not there, they'll move on. If you're not there, they will find somebody else. They'll find a friend. They'll find some other um, caregiver figure. Uh, they'll, they'll just go out on their own. And once you've abandoned a child's life, it is terribly difficult to get back in. I won't say it's impossible, but it's very, very hard to do. This is why when they're little preschoolers, you are already dealing with a problem teenager. See, how you deal with a preschooler sets the groundwork and the foundation for how you will deal with a teenager. If you're in their life and they're a preschooler, and then they become, you know, in elementary school, and you're there in their life, when they become teenagers and you want to be in their life, you're already there, and you're not a stranger. One of the silliest things parents do is they ignore their children until they get to be 14, 15, and then they try to lecture them on life. Who are you? Never seen you before. That's why when they're little, tiny children, you get down on the floor. And I used to always say, and you play cars with them, and you make little noise sounds. You know, and then my granddaughter was born, so in my office today, there's a tea set. And, uh, <laughs> it was bought after, after I said this, and, and, uh, and we have had tea parties, and my office has been the tea store. And, uh, we, you do that. Because if you don't connect early, they won't let you in later. See, uh, those of you who have small children, preschoolers in your home, you're already dealing with your problem teenager. And, and I have a theory on this. I can't back it up from the Bible. But my theory is a, a child is going to cost you so much time, no matter what you do. It's just either you will have all the time to yourself as you ignore them as small children. And then as teenagers, they are just going to cause you fits. Or you can spend a lot of time with them as small children. And again, everybody's different, but the odds are, and we're Baptists, so we don't play the odds, but the odds are that when they're teenagers, you'll be able to walk through with them through some very tough times in life, and you'll help them negotiate it. And it won't cost you near as much if you spend the time early on. It's, it's pay me now, pay me later kind of thing. So you teach a child to honor you, and by that I mean you teach a child to let you into their life and to value your presence in their life. And that happens from day one and for the rest of their lives. You have to work at it and do that. Godly parent then also will teach a child hope. And I get that from verse uh, 3, where it says, that it may go well with you uh, and that you may live long in the land. In other words, he's saying, children, obey your parents because that's the way life is just better. Life's just more fulfilled when you're living according to this pattern. And 
and you're working it out uh, this way. As parents, what, what that means is you need a goal for your child's life. Most of us know the word goal from the, the guy on television after they score in, excuse me, soccer, actually football. But you know what I'm talking about, goal! Am I the only one who heard this guy? You need a goal for your children. And it's not, what, what is my, my goal is that my children would be happy. Well, there you go. Oh, I want my children to be successful. Well, that's fine. I want my children to have an overwhelming passion for Jesus Christ. And I want them to love God as their heavenly father. And to be so intimate with him that when everything else falls apart, they still have a sure anchor to hold them in life's worst storms. You know, I, I, a good goal is I don't want my children to need me. I want them to want me. And there's a difference between the two. And that'll change how you live. That'll change how you discipline. That'll change uh, how, how you deal with your children. Just very quickly, because time eludes us, but uh, you, you will teach hope that there's something more out there, and you will work towards that and be very conscious about that. Uh, a lot of things. It's too good to pass. You need to be a student of your child. Know them inside and out. Know what makes them tick. What works with one kid will not work with the other. What works today won't work tomorrow. Uh, what is... What is beneficial in one setting just will be absolutely absurd in another setting. You've got to be a student of your child and understand that's hard work. It takes a long time, but let me tell you, it's how you love your kids. That's how your love becomes more than just, I feel great when I'm around them, to I'm actually invested in their lives and willing to sacrifice for them. And finally, and we'll just conclude with this, um, you will teach guidance and discipline and instruction and this says, uh, discipline and instruction of the Lord. King James says, nurture and admonition of the Lord. Uh, these are two Greek words that have to do with the totality of raising a child up, just uh, educationally, but also physically and emotionally. Uh, just You will teach them in the context of who God is and who Christ is. You will teach your children. Now, uh, just think about it. Now, how do we teach? Because we could talk a long time about what to teach and those kinds of things. But let me just ask you, how do you really teach a child? If you know how to make a child learn something, write a book on it, you'll be on the lecture circuit the rest of your life. But how do we teach a child? I got to think about this. Because I, I was thinking about lear learning a, a foreign language. Uh, for some reason, that seemed interesting to me. So I was thinking about a foreign language. And what uh, one theory will say is the way you learn a foreign language is learn it the way you learned a language as a child. Preschoolers are amazing. Do you realize they learn a foreign language and they don't even know what language is? Think about it. You didn't do that, except as a preschooler. You haven't done it since. But anyway, that's on one side. So uh, how, do, how, do, how do children learn a language? Well, it's because the moment they get close to the right sound, we go just berserk about how wonderful it is. Kids just sitting there and going, da, 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 da. Daddy, I heard daddy. Sure enough, I heard daddy. They say, oh, that's a pretty good thing to go da-da-da-da-da-da. I think I'll keep that up. I have no idea what it means, but I go da-da-da. They're surrounded by encouragement constantly. Every time a child says something, what do you do? Isn't that sweet? And they get a hug and a kiss, and, and, and life is just so wonderful. And if they make a mistake, you know what you do. You say, you realize you didn't conjugate that verb properly, and I, I'm, I'm really offended that you're not adhering to a notion of 
of uh, grammar as being proscriptive. Okay. No, they make a mistake. You know what you do? Say, oh, that's, that's sweet, honey, but don't say go, just say went. Okay? Say, I went to the store. Oh, okay. Of course, that's assuming you know the, the grammar. But... <laughs> But when they make a mistake, you're gentle and you're kind and, and it's just so wonderfully cute to you. And as they keep going, and then they're surrounded with language coaches. Every time a child says something, there's somebody there to say, here's the right word, here's the right way to say it. And, and you ever do this? You plant sentences in your kid because it's cute. They have no idea what they're saying, but you send them up to another adult to say something incredibly profound. The child has no idea what it is, but... You're constantly coaching your child. You're teaching them dialogue. You're, you're practicing conversations over and over and over again. When you talk to them, you talk to them over and over again. You talk slowly. You talk on their level. All those things to teach a language, and it comes naturally. Not a one of you think about it, but you teach your child a foreign language, and that's how you do it. This is how children learn the things of God. When mom and dad surround them with the things of God, and every time they approach the things of God, there's a little bit of praise and hallelujah breaks out. And if they make a mistake and they stumble, you just love them back and tell them what the right thing is. And you do it every day, all day long, and roughly for five years. It takes about five years before a human being is able to speak a language. It takes about 21 years before you can understand them. But... Uh, in about five years, they, they, they learn a language. I could learn a foreign language if everybody around me just thought I was the greatest thing ever to walk the face of the earth, which you do, and, um, and, and would help me with my vocabulary and, and sentence structure. This is how children learn the things of God. You repeat it again and again and again. You're always there. You're always conscious that you're teaching it, and it just flows naturally out of your love for Christ. You want your child to love him too. And in a way appropriate to his or her age, you just share with them what's going on. So um, a loving, godly parent will teach the things of the Lord as well. A lot more that could be said, but we'll, we'll just close it there for now. But basically it's this. Children are in your life, whether, whether your children in your home, nieces, nephews, extended family, small ones in the neighborhood, to the extent that they're in your life, they're there for the glory of God. You'll have to remind yourself of that sometimes. But they're there that you might glorify God and give Him honor and praise and give them the gift of knowing God's glory as well. So I, I just, you know, as a parent, I'm, I'm just going to ask you, you know, think through, identify what is the goal that you have for your child and how does that relate to the glory of God. Let's close in prayer. And Father, we're thankful that as imperfect as we are, you, you work a miraculous work in the lives of our children, sometimes in spite of us, but, Father, always because of your grace, love, and mercy. And so I first lift up the, the children of our church and the children represented in the homes that are here today. I pray a blessing upon them, safety, welfare, health. But especially, Father, I pray that even today, something that is said would speak to young hearts in a way appropriate to their age that they would come to know you and love you and serve you their whole lives long. Make us useful as instruments of your glory in the lives of our children. I ask it in Jesus' name.